0: Our Holy Father, we have just sung to you that you will hold us fast, you who gave everything in your Son for us, bearing the very shame and sin and judgment that we deserve to be punished for in all of eternity. Thank you that as our substitute, the one who took on our own humanity from heaven, bore all of our sin and judgment, and that you said you'll never leave us nor forsake us, that it's not we that hold on to you, but you hold on to us. You've secured us for all of eternity through his completed and finished work. So we tell you today that we're not our own. We are yours. We've been bought with a great price, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb. And we bow before him, our Father, and praise you and give you thanks and honor. Thank you that someday at his throne with all of heaven, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, with the people of Israel, we shall give him and offer him our praise. We come today and we ask that you would open your word to us. You told us not to lean purely on our own understanding. So with a great need, we ask that you would take the word of God, the spirit of God gave and illuminate it to our minds and hearts that we can understand it. We pray and ask that we would be more than just those who hear the word, but those who are ready to apply it. You've told us that in your plan for us, we are to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within us. And so we pray that because of our study today, we would be better equipped. Now, Father, without you, I can't do anything, but with you, all things are possible. And so I ask in Jesus' name that you would come and fill me and anoint me and use me that your precious Son might be honored and lifted up. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to Daniel chapter 9. We've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great prophecy. And when we come to the ninth chapter, in many ways, we come to the high point in the book of Daniel. There are many mountain peaks of prophecy in Daniel, but if there's a Mount Everest, I suppose it is Daniel, the ninth chapter. It is God's outline, God's blueprint for the future concerning the Holy Land and the Jewish people. And it really very clearly pictures how God will culminate human history through the nation of Israel. It's one great passage, and I suppose if I were just preaching the highlights of Daniel, I would skip it because it is one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible to teach. But it's an important passage, not only as it relates to us, but as as it relates to the people of Israel. You know, evil people have always tried to destroy and annihilate the Jewish people. But you can't get rid of the Jewish people. God promises that they will survive, that Israel will make it, because God has a plan for Israel. I mean, have you ever thought, that through the ages, how people have tried to destroy them, but they cannot. Why? Because they are the people that God used to bring the Christ through from heaven to earth the first time, and they are the people that God will use to bring the Messiah back a second time. Now, prophecy really is history pre-written. And within this book, you will find some of the most specific prophecies found in all of the Word of God, and that's why so many of the liberals hate it. But let me bring you into the immediate context of where we are today. If you were with us in our last study of Daniel, you will remember that Daniel the prophet has been agonizing and fasting in prayer. He's seeking God's forgiveness, not just for his sin, but for the whole nation. And he's seeking to discover God's will for Israel as it relates especially to the captivity where they have been there in Babylon. Babylon. And so we find him praying in the first 19 verses. And if you remember, his prayer was prompted by his reading of the prophet Jeremiah. God foretold by a contemporary of his, Jeremiah the prophet, in the 25th and the 29th chapters, that this time of captivity would last for 70 years. In fact, notice we are introduced to the fact that he's reading Jeremiah in the first two verses. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. Now, if you remember, King Darius was the king in Daniel 5 that we studied, and he was alive on the very last day of the Babylonian Empire. He was having a big drunken party that night, and of course, Darius the Mede came in and overthrew the Babylonian Empire, just as God had predicted. And, of course, they are using the holy instruments that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Jerusalem temple, and they're mocking the God of Israel. And so God used used the Medes to come and to mock them, to allow justice to be satisfied. So we read here in verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So remember, the prophecies in chapters 7 through 12 can be laid over chapters 1 through 6. And I showed you that before, and I'll show it to you again, that 7 through 12 do not follow chronologically right after 1 through 6, but they fit in and around chapters 1 through 6. And so Daniel has, this is near the time when Daniel has had his experience in the lion's den. He's an old man around 85, maybe 90 years of age. It's the first year of Darius's reign, which tells you that 67 of the 70 years that God wrote about by the prophet Jeremiah for the time of the captivity had elapsed. So Daniel is living on the threshold of the fulfillment of a prophecy. And so beginning in verse 20 until the end of the chapter, God brings an answer to Daniel's prayer. Starting in verse 20, he has an encounter with an angel familiar to most of you named Gabriel. And we are given in verses 20 and 21 the introduction to the prophecy. Notice, now while I was speaking and praying in confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. The holy mountain, of course, is Mount Moriah, where the temple was once located. It's destroyed at this point. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it 60-some years before. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Don't miss that. Gabriel, by some method, touched his body, his heart, his mind, his soul. He basically tapped him on the shoulder and said, Daniel, you know, did you call? And notice, too, he comes, the Bible says here, while he was still speaking. Now, remember, angels are not omnipresent. They have to fly from one location to another to get on location. And so God begins to answer Daniel's prayer ever before he's finished the prayer. And it's a reminder to me that if your prayer, my prayer, is in the will of God, God is not reluctant to answer prayer. I love Isaiah 65, 24. I have it written out here in the margin of my Bible. The prophet said, It will also come to pass... That before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. So God sees Daniel's heart. He begins to answer it by sending this angel ever before he finishes. And notice, too, another very important notation in this verse this prayer was offered during the time of the evening offering. Now, that's not accidental. There are no accidents in the Bible. Every word is inspired by God, and when you come to prophecy, especially, you need to study every word. It's not like a parable. A lot of people write prophecy off like parable. Oh, there's just one big main lesson. Why? Because they don't want to deal with the nuts and bolts and the issues that are involved. Many times, because it contradicts their own theological system. But it's during the time of the evening offering. When was that? It was 3 p.m. in the afternoon. At 3 p.m. every afternoon, there was an offering that was made, and it was a reminder, the Old Testament offerings, when they would shed an animal's blood, that a man could only approach God through blood, but an animal's blood could save no one. Those were just pictures and foreshadowings of the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, and it was during the time of the evening offering, the New Testament tells us, at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, precisely that the Lord Jesus died there on Golgotha. God reminds us that apart from the shedding of blood, you have no access to God. You must come his way by the blood of the Messiah. Verse 22, he gave me instruction... And talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision." Like King David, Daniel was a man after God's own heart. Like the apostle John, who is a beloved disciple, and like Jacob's son Joseph, of whom a single sin is not written of, only good is written of Daniel. Now, he was a sinner. He just confessed his own sin, but God never records any of his sin because he is a man of God. His name, Dan- Daniel... Hebrew reads from right to left. Whenever you see the word "L" in usually the English text in the Old Testament, it's the word for God. And Daniel's name means God is my judge. And he lived out that name. He could care less what people thought of him. God was his judge, and he lived for God. And God says here in verse 23, you are highly esteemed. The English Standard says you are greatly loved. The Net Bible says you are of great value. The Holman Christian edition says, for you are treasured by God. Question, does God have favorites? No, I don't believe God has favorites. Yet God says, Daniel is highly esteemed, greatly beloved. What does that mean? Does it mean that God loves some more than others? No, he loves us all equally. But while God does not have favorites, he does have intimates. And if you've been born again, you can become one of God's intimates through your obedience. It's through obedience, John 14, 21 says, that God reveals or discloses himself to you. Proverbs 3 says that God is intimate with the upright. His, the upright, the proverb says, are in his confidence. And Daniel is such a man. Verse 23, I've come to tell you for you are highly esteemed to give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. He's not received the vision yet, but God is about to tell him directly through the angel Gabriel. Now, Daniel wants information as you read his prayer concerning the Babylonian captivity. He's praying about God's holy mountain where the temple once stood. But God is going to give him so much more than he asked for gabriel is going to tell him the very year the messiah is going to come he's going to tell him about a future prince we call antichrist and he's going to take this prophecy all the way until the second return of the messiah and so now in verses 24 to 27 this vision is a prophecy of things to come and most consider this the backbone of all prophecy in the Bible, most of the time when people are off on the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, they are confused on other issues. And this is why it's important we do our homework. Now, let me give you an overview of the prophecy, as you can see in this chart. Um, Daniel 9.24 covers the entire 70 weeks, which we will see stands for 490 years. When we come to verse 25, which we'll look at today as well, he deals with the first 69 or the first 483 of those 490 years. When we come next time to Daniel nine we're going to see that there is a gap of time between the 69th and the 70th week. We are in that gap. We are living in it. And so we don't know how long it will be. It's been approximately 2,000 years already. But I believe that gap is coming to an end. It will conclude with the rapture of the church. And then when we come to the 70th week, the following week in Daniel 9.27, it will deal with the final week or the final seven years, what Daniel will call in the 12th chapter, what Jesus will call in Matthew 24, the coming great tribulation. So before we are finished, you're going to see that among other truths, the 70 weeks prophecy pinpoints the exact timing of the first coming of the Christ. And once again, these verses give us absolute proof for the divine inspiration of Scripture. If you've read the booklet that I wrote for Answers in Genesis, How to Prove the Bible is True, I went through five proofs for the divine inspiration of Scripture. And one of the most powerful reasons that God gives within His Word is fulfilled prophecy. Only God can, in specific ways, predict the future. And so 500 years in advance, he predicts the exact date that the Messiah will come and present himself as the Prince of Israel. Now, that's by way of introduction, so let's get into the nuts and bolts of the prophecy. Again, it will take us three weeks to cover the next four verses. So bear with me. Again, this is not milk, this is meat you're going to probably have to go back and hear the tape a few times if you really want to understand this portion of Scripture. So first we begin with the period that is spoken of, the period that is spoken of. Look now at verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So to begin with, and it's very important, we discover that the angel Gabriel said that this would all happen in 70 weeks. So what is meant by 70 weeks? If you have the New American Standard Bible, and this is why it's important that you bring a paper edition because the computer Bibles don't give the footnotes, you will see right before the word weeks a little number one. Do you see that? It will be helpful to you. And if you go out into the margin of the text... It tells you the literal rendering of the Hebrew word. The word weeks is the Greek word shavua, which means seven. In fact, whenever you see the word weeks in this chapter, you can substitute the word seven. Seventy sevens or 70 units of seven have been decreed for your people. Now this word shavua is a lot like our word dozen. If I said 70 dozen have been given to you, you would naturally ask 70 dozen what? And so when he said seventy sevens or seventy weeks have been decreed, you're going to ask naturally, seventy sevens of what? Now, in most English Bibles, it does not say seventy sevens, but seventy weeks. But that can be a little confusing because to most English readers, our week is just a week of seven days. We think of a week that's seven days long. But a Jewish person not only had a weeks of years but a weeks of days. There was a weeks of days. Their week was seven days long as established by God. And the seventh day was a set-apart day, the Sabbath day, Saturday, on which they are to worship. Under the new covenant, we set apart the first day of the week. During the millennial reign, we'll go back to the seventh week, seventh day. But right now, we worship on the first day of the week. And I'm glad you are here. I'm glad you are in obedience to the Word of God, that you didn't blow today off where you said, I'm going to go to the beach or fishing or start my vacation. To do so is to disobey one of the Ten Commandments. So they had six days in which to work and a seventh day in which to rest. But not only did they have a week of days, they had a week of years. And so they had a Sabbath day and they had a Sabbath year. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 3 and 4, God specifically said, In six years you will farm the land, but on the seventh year you will give the land rest. And they understood this to be the Sabbath year, every seven years. So they have this weeks of years. So what I want you to see this morning, and this is not uh, peripheral to the sermon, it's central to it, because those who attack the Bible do so on the basis of the meaning of the word Shavuah. Is this a weeks of days or a weeks of years? Well, I want to show you this morning that this is a week of years. Understand, the two most attacked books in the Bible are Genesis and Daniel. Because in both of those books, you not only have the miraculous, you have some of the most precise prophecies found in the Word of God. And people don't like that. They don't want to know where we came from, and they don't want to know where we are going because they want to suppress the truth of God and deny his right to rule. Many young people who are here, you may go off to the university, and if you were like me, when I had some electives, I took some of my elective courses in the religion department just because I saw it as an opportunity potentially to study the Bible. And if you go to your average university campus, most of the guys with PhDs and hams are liberals on those secular campuses, and they will attack the Bible and try to undermine your faith. And they'll say, well, the Daniel 70 weeks prophecy is dealing not with 490 years, but 490 days. These events described in here obviously didn't happen in 490 days. Therefore, Daniel can be discredited as the rest of the Bible. Now, as a new Christian, when I heard some of these professors attack the Bible, I didn't really know how to respond to them. I just knew because I believed in Jesus. Jesus said there were no errors in the Bible, and if that's what he taught, that's what I believed. But I was determined to be able to make a defense for the hope that was in me. And one of the things I wanted to do in my four-year THM program at Dallas Seminary was to study the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. And what we're looking at today, again, is not the milk of the word, but the meat of the word. So I want to give you three contextual arguments to show that what he is referring to is not a week of days, but a week of years, therefore 490 years. Reason number one is an argument from chapter 9. Now, as this next slide illustrates, if you remember from our study of Daniel last time, he's an old man and he's praying this prayer in response to his study of Jeremiah the prophet. This whole ninth chapter is dealing with units of 70 years, and we learn that God chose 70 years for his people to be captive in Babylon because over 490 years, they had ignored 70 years where they were to give the land rest, and prophet after prophet said, obey the word of God, you are in rebellion, live in faith, and they refused to do that. And so they had to trust God in the seventh year when they could not grow their crops that in the sixth year he would give them enough food that would carry them through the next year. But because they had disobeyed God's command for 490 years, God set the exile at 70 years. He said, if you won't give me what I want, then I will take it from you. And so he decrees them to be in exile for 70 years. So in the context of chapter 9, he's not dealing with days, but years. We learned in our last study in verse 2 from Daniel 25 through 29 that it was 70 years that is set for the exile. And so it's not surprising now, as they near the end of those 70 years, that God would send the angel Gabriel, and because the people still hadn't really repented, God is going to deal with another 490 years in the future. So he's looking back at 490 years, which led to a 70-year exile, and he's looking now 490 years into the future. Not 490 days, but 490 years. So you can argue from the context of Daniel chapter 9 that just the events that he describes here in verse 24 could not have happened. In 490 days. I mean, look at them. They're listed here in Daniel 9 24. There are six Hebrew infinitives. They're easy to spot in our English Bible with the little word to. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. Now, if you read that and you thought simply, well, how could that happen in 490 days? It would be impossible. Then you'd be thinking correctly. And so, again, the context of the ninth chapter is dealing with years. Secondly, reason number two is an argument from chapter 10. From chapter 10. Follow along with me in chapter 10, the verses two and three. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. You see the word entire. It's the Hebrew word yom. Most of you know that Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word for day. For you could literally translate three sevens of days. For three sevens of days, I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment until the three sevens of days or the three weeks of days were completed. Now, this is the only other place that this word Shavuah 7 appears in the book of Daniel. We translate it week. And here it is qualified by the Hebrew word yom, day. Now, don't miss that. It seems clear here in 924 that if, if the prophet Daniel had wanted to refer to weeks of days, that he would qualify it with the word yom. But he doesn't. And again, the context makes it unnecessary because he's dealing with weeks of years. And it seems unnecessary that he would qualify here in chapter 10 the word seven or weeks with the word day because no one can obviously fast for three weeks of years or 21 years. But because the Holy Spirit wants to set apart ever so clearly so that no one can miss it, the difference of what's going on in chapters 9 and 10, he underscores that truth. Reason number three would be the rest of Scripture. As you study the rest of Scripture, you realize plainly that God has a week of years. There are many examples we could look at. Let me give you just one. Genesis chapter 29 If you remember, Jacob wanted to marry Laban's daughter, Rachel, and he told his future father-in-law in in Genesis 29, 18, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And of course, you know what happened. He tricked Jacob, and um, we read in verse 25 of Genesis 29, so it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why have you deceived me? But Laban said, it is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. Literally, complete the Shavuah, complete the seven. And we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve me for another seven years. Don't miss that. Very clearly in this verse, Laban is equating the word Shavuah, the word we're looking at here in Daniel 9, the word seven. He is equating the term seven years with a week of years. Jacob was being asked to serve another seven, another week, another seven years. Now, back here in Daniel 9, very clearly, based on the context of chapter 9, the argument from chapter 10, and the way the term is used in the rest of Scripture, God is not speaking of 490 days, but 490 years. Are you with me? Follow that? All right, good. Now, that's the period spoken of. Secondly, let's talk about the people that are involved. It's very important that we understand not only the time God's talking about, the persons also that he's referring to. And there are three distinct personages that are mentioned in this passage of Scripture. First point A, there in your outline, the Jewish people are involved. The Jewish people. Notice how verse 24 begins. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people. Well, what does Gabriel mean when he speaks of your people? Well, if Daniel is a Hebrew... And he is, and your people must refer to the Hebrew or the Jewish people. So this is not a prophecy about the Gentiles. This is a prophecy about the Jews. This prophecy involves Gentiles, but only as they relate to Jews. So if you want to understand prophecy, critical to understanding most of the prophecy in Scripture that is in reference to the Messiah concerns the nation of Israel. They are his yardstick. He began the program through Israel. He is going to end the program through Israel. And there are many people today who want to deny that, but the word of God is so clear. So first, the Jewish people are involved. Second, there are two princes that are involved. First, the prince, who is Messiah, is involved. The first of these two princes, named here in the New American Standard, is Messiah the Prince. That's the way the King James... And the Holman Christian Standard also render it. The NIV 84, I don't like the new NIV. I don't recommend it because it's tried to be gender neutral. But the old NIV renders it the anointed one. That's not necessarily bad because the word Messiah messiah, means the anointed one. The ESV is a little looser here. They render it an anointed one. But he's not speaking of an anointed one. He's speaking of the anointed one, Messiah, the prince. This is a clear, specific messianic prophecy concerning, as we'll see in a moment, the Lord Jesus. So the Jewish people are involved. The second person mentioned is the prince, Messiah, the prince. And then the third person is the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come is involved. Let's read the first half Of verse 26. Then, after the 62 weeks, after the 62 sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, we will examine the prince who is to come in the next few weeks. We will see very clearly that this is a distinct prince. This is different from Messiah, the prince. This prince, as we will see in verse 27, will commit the abomination of desolation, which both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John, as Christ himself, points to the coming Antichrist. So this is a distinct prince here, and I think you will see that. Okay, so there's the people who are involved the Jewish people, the prince who is Messiah and the prince who is to come. Let's now think about the place that is designated, the place that is designated. Look, if you will, now at verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, there are three truths that we know about this holy city. Number one, the holy city is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, there is only one holy city, and that is Jerusalem. And because I believe the Bible, I believe with all of my heart that the most holy city on the face of the earth is Jerusalem. Now, some think it's Rome, some think it's Nashville, or Washington, or, or Moscow, or Beijing, or New Delhi, or Tokyo, or Paris. But the most important city on the face of the earth in both the Old and the New Testaments is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's the holy city because up there on the Temple Mount where the temple once stood, God himself in his Shekinah glory would come into that special section of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And so in describing Jerusalem, the psalmist said this in Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. He's describing Jerusalem and Jerusalem is the city of our God, Beautiful in elevation. It's up high. Remember, up and down in the Bible is not north and south. It's elevation. Up is going up in elevation. Down is going down in elevation. And of course, the Temple Mount that David originally bought is the threshing floor because you would thresh wheat up in a high spot where the wind was. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the the great king. Jerusalem was the place where God himself would come. Jerusalem was the place where God the Son ministered in the temple and in its streets. Jerusalem is the city in which he was crucified. Jerusalem is the city in which he was raised from the dead. It is the city of the great king. So the holy city is Jerusalem. Secondly, the holy city is the prophetic center of the world. The holy city is the prophetic center of the world. And of course, the Old Testament prophets, as well as the book of Revelation, all teach that in the last days, Jerusalem will be the international hotspot. In a few weeks, when we study the prince who is to come, we will see that the Antichrist in Jerusalem will make a covenant with Israel and he will defile the tribulation temple. The Jewish people today want to build another temple up there in Mount Moriah. I suspect that will not happen until the Antichrist, the man of peace, who will come with all kinds of false signs and wonders, he will allow them to pull it off. And there are certain prophecies that have to be fulfilled in the middle of the seven-year period that relate to this coming temple. So prophetically speaking, Jerusalem is the hot spot, and it is the very place that the Lord Jesus will come back again. In Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4, it says, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And so Jerusalem is destined to become the capital city of the world because at the second coming of Jesus, he will come back to Jerusalem and he will rule and reign from the city of Jerusalem for 1,000 years. And in fact, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, when God destroys this current heaven and earth, which we will study in Revelation 21, and he will make a new heaven and a new earth, the place that believers go to today when they die, old and new covenant believers, that Jesus calls the Father's house, that Revelation calls the New Jerusalem, that glorious city we call heaven will literally come down to the place today we call Jerusalem on a brand new heaven and earth, and that new city with the whole planet will be the place where we will spend eternity. So the holy city is Jerusalem. The holy city is the prophetic center of the world. But note too, the holy city is the geographic center of the world. Not only is it the prophetic center of the world, if you look on a map, you will see it's the geographic center of the world from God's perspective. That's why Ezekiel can write in the fifth chapter, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations, would land around her. Now, in the 60s, when I was a child attending Nelson Place Grammar School, there on the blackboard was a map of the United States, a flat map, and all the flat maps in that day had the United States of America right in the center. Well, if God were to make a flat map of the globe, I can tell you he'd have Israel dead center in Jerusalem at the focus of his eye. Israel is not much bigger than Delaware or New Jersey, yet very rarely does a day go by when we don't hear something about it. Why? Because it is a very important place in prophecy. Okay, so there's the period spoken of. There's the people that are involved. There's the place that is designated. Now, we want to consider forth the purpose that is unfolded. The purpose that is unfolded. Now, here in verse 24, God unfolds six purposes, Six purposes that he has for the people of Israel. And again, there are six infinitives in the Hebrew. They're easy to spot in the English Bible. First, God's purpose is to conclude the transgression. He wants to conclude the transgression. Look now, if you will, at verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. Notice it does not say a transgression but the transgression. And what is the transgression of Israel? The Bible says in John 1, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. The people of Israel rejected their Messiah holistically. God has always had a remnant. On the day of Pentecost, over 3,000 Jews alone were saved. But nonetheless, overall, the people of Israel rejected her king. And God spoke of the fact that it will take 490 years to finish the transgression for their apostasy to be renounced. We studied this in Romans chapter 11, that while God has always had a remnant of believers, for the most part, their spiritual ears are stuffed, their spiritual eyes are blind, but a day is coming when they will see and hear spiritually, and they will believe on the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. So God's purpose is to conclude the transgression. Second, God's purpose is to cancel their sin, to cancel their sin. Again, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sin. It will take 77, 70 weeks, 490 years to get past this national apostasy where God is going to make an end of their sin. You see, they are in sin right now because they are in unbelief. And that's why many of them, like most Gentiles, are unforgiven. What are they trying to do? Why did they reject their Messiah? Because self-righteousness had built up into the hearts of the people. They were trying to earn their salvation. And so when you step in the ninth chapter, Paul shows how God elected the nation of Israel out of all the nations of the world. In the tenth chapter, he explains why they rejected him. In the eleventh chapter, how he will restore them. But the tenth chapter opens up my heart. Burden for them is for their salvation. He describes that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And then he says in the third verse of that chapter, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. The sin of Israel reminds me of myself. Because for the first 18 years, I tried to establish my own righteousness, not knowing that my righteousness fell way short of God's needed righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot be your own savior, and if you are trying to earn your way to heaven, then right now you are not in good favor with God. These people remind me of modern-day Mormons and Jehovah's Witness who work so hard going door to door to convince people of a message that will only lead them directly into hell. They remind me of the liberal Protestant who rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ and has substituted the social gospel for it, that God's plan through Christ is just to make earth a better place. Look, God teaches very clearly, in the end, earth will not get become a better place. Ultimately, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And if you think this past week was hard, we haven't seen anything yet. My friend, there is coming a time in human history where you can take the events of the last week and you can multiply them 10,000 times over across the planet. And so the social gospel is no substitute for the new birth. All the social gospel can do is make uh, Earth a better place to go to hell towards. They remind me of the Muslims who will blow themselves up for Allah. They remind me of the Hindus that I saw on one of my trips to New Delhi, where there worshiping at one of the pagan shrines was a poor mother, and it was obvious that her children were malnourished, but there she was offering a food sacrifice to her pagan goddess. You see, you can have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. You can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. And God cannot make an end of anyone's sin who's seeking to earn their forgiveness because it violates the justice of God because the wages of sin is death and nothing short of death can satisfy God. And you can pay that death for an eternity, or you can take the one who paid the death for you on a cross. So we're going to learn that Israel in the 70th week is going to come and recognize that the one named Yeshua, Jesus, is indeed their holy Messiah. But right now, between the 69th and the 70th weeks that we will study next time, that Jesus himself taught there's a gap of time. God is building his church. All right. So third, not only is God's purpose to cancel their sin, but God's purpose is to complete their salvation, to complete their salvation. Again, in verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity. Now, he's talking about the sins of the Hebrew people. God is talking about the Jewish people having their sins forgiven or atoned for. And he mentions them not because they're more sinful than us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He simply mentions that after the fact that the transgression, their apostasy is finished and their sin of unbelief is ended, God is going to take the atonement of the Messiah and credit it to their lives. Look, when you believe in Christ, the Bible says you are justified. Justification is not just as if you never sinned. That's only half of it. Not only does God wipe the slate clean, it's just as if you always obeyed. He credits to your account through the atonement of Christ, the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus. So there's going to be a finishing of the transgression. There will be an end of sin and atonement for iniquity because their unbelief will turn to genuine faith. Fourth, We also learn during these 77s that God's purpose is also to commence everlasting righteousness, to commence everlasting righteousness. When Israel turns to Messiah Yeshua, the Bible says God will make an end of sin to make atonement for iniquity, and when this happens, he will bring in everlasting righteousness. He's referring to the millennial reign when the Lord Jesus will reign in everlasting righteousness. At the end of the 70th week, the visible return of Jesus will take place from heaven. He will set his feet on the Mount of Olives, split it in two, open up the eastern gate, walk right into the city of Jerusalem, and he will rule and reign for a thousand years. He will bring in everlasting righteousness. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of this in the 36th chapter. He says, moreover, speaking of the Jewish people, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances, and their sin I will remember no more. At this time, when Messiah's kingdom comes to earth, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven amongst the Jewish people. One of these days, the Jewish people is going, are going to repent of the transgression of their apostasy. They're going to give up their unbelief, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Messiah. Fifth, God will... God's purpose is to confirm the scriptures, to confirm the scriptures, point E there. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city. Notice fifth, to seal up vision and prophecy. So Daniel tells us here in verse 24 that all of this will seal up vision and prophecy, that God will fulfill every prophecy that he has made. God is saying this will wrap things up All that I predicted, every promise I made will be fulfilled. This is what God is working for and he will not quit until it is completely done. God is not behind time. God is not ahead of time. God is never late. God is right on time. God is not up in heaven sweating this week as he watches the foolish wickedness of this world unfold. He is on his throne. He knows what he is about. He wrote about it in advance. And just as he fulfilled all of the prophecies in the past, he is going to fulfill every single prophecy that is yet to happen. He'll wrap it all up. He'll cross the final T, dot the final I, and he will seal up the vision and the prophecy. F on your outline. God's purpose is to consecrate the sanctuary. To consecrate the sanctuary. This is all here in this one verse. Daniel 9 24 says that God will bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Someday, God will put his blessing on a final temple. There's a temple that is yet to be built. We call it sometimes the tribulational temple. But then there's another temple yet to be built during the time of the millennial reign of the Messiah. And God will anoint that most holy place. During the reign of the Messiah on the earth, God will have a brand new temple that God's people will go and worship in. Now, if you've ever studied the tabernacle, if you've ever studied the temple, it will blow your mind. I need to do a series, if God will let me do it before I die, on the tabernacle and the temple. Because every bit of its construction, every fiber put into that little tent, every uh, piece of furniture, the way it was organized, the way they camped around it, all pointed to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will worship in the millennial temple and we will look back and we will see the wisdom of God unfolded throughout the ages, shouting that Jesus is Lord. Now, Gabriel is just giving him the overall plan. But knowing that Daniel is not satisfied with just summaries, and that's all I've given you so far, now he begins to sketch in the details. So we've talked about the period. We've talked about the people. We've talked about the place. We've talked about the purpose. Are you with me? Still tracking? All right, good. Some of you, I know you got to go home and listen to this several times. Now it's the hardest part. Now the plan that is specified. The plan that is specified. God tells him how he is going to do it, one step at a time. And I'm so grateful that he did. It seems that Gabriel anticipates the questions that Daniel would naturally ask. And so God tells us when the 490 years will start and he gives us different intervals during the 490 years. And if you can get a hold of this prophecy, it's absolutely mind-blowing. It's not easy, but it is understandable. How do I know it's understandable? Because Jesus will quote Daniel chapter 9, and he will say, let the reader understand. Meaning, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of to the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. What does that tell me? It tells me it's understandable. And with the Spirit's help and His illumination, we can get a handle on this today. Now, there are four aspects of the plan that are specified. First, Gabriel tells him about the commencement of the count. The commencement of the count. Beginning in verse 25, God gives us the starting point of the 490 years. So... You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Okay, let's walk through this carefully. We need first understand the trigger. What is the starting point? When does the 77s, the 70 weeks of years, start when do these 490 years begin? And when do they conclude? He's going to tell us. The beginning of the count is from the issuing of a decree to rebuild, and to restore and rebuild in Jerusalem. So we need to ask. When was the decree given to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem? Because if we can locate the decree and pinpoint its precise date, then we have the precise starting date of this 70 weeks prophecy. Now, you might want to circle the word decree and draw an arrow out into the margin. And write here, what you see on this chart, Nehemiah 2. Write Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8 out there in the margin. And uh you don't have to turn there, you can if you want. Uh it's right before the Psalms, a few books before that. Right before the Psalms you have Job, before that, you have Esther, and right before that you have Nehemiah. Now, if you read your Old Testament, remember the decree had not yet been written. They're away in Babylon, they're gonna go back uh, to Israel, to Jerusalem, and a number of decrees with their going back are written. The first three are found in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus, who has actually prophesied 150 years before he's born by name, which is again why the liberals hate Isaiah as well. Cyrus comes to the throne and he says, go back and build your temple for your God. That's the decree that's written of in Ezra chapter 1. Later on, Darius is on the throne, a guy named Darius, different Darius from the one in the book of Daniel, and in Ezekiel 6, he says, go back, because not all the Jews at first went back, and build your temple for your God. Then a guy named Artaxerxes comes to the throne, Artaxerxes is kind of like a title, like president, uh, as much as it is a name, and in 457 BC, he says, go back, build your temple, refurbish it, make it really Nice. But then there's only one decree that is given, and it's found in the book of Nehemiah, and it concerns not the rebuilding of the temple, but it concerns the rebuilding of the city. In Nehemiah 1, when Nehemiah gets to report as to the state of the city, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then when you step into chapter 2, God gives an answer to Nehemiah's prayer. Let me read Nehemiah 2, beginning in verse 1. So it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now King Artaxerxes, it's a firm date not just in biblical history, but in secular history. He began reigning in 465 B.C. So counting backwards, because this is before Christ, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign would make it 445 B.C. So it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sat in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. Why? Because to come into the king's presence and to rain on his party with a sad, droopy face could cost you potentially your life. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. He he he, he, he just shoots up this prayer gram to God. I said to the king. If it pleased the king, knowing that the king's heart is in the hand of God, if it pleased the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tomb, that I may rebuild it. Now, we're going to see in a moment that it took a long time to rebuild the city, but Nehemiah plays a very important role. What they had not been able to do for 90 years, he does in 52 days. He rebuilds the walls, which are absolutely essential to the rebuilding of the city. Because the walls are walls of defense that would allow them to rebuild the city. And we're told, here in verse 1, that this happened in the month Nisan in the 20th year of kings, Artaxerxes. And we know from secular history that all decrees by kings were always done on the first day of the month. So you could say Nisan 1, 445 B.C. In our Julian calendar, that would be March 14th, 445 B.C. That's the starting date of the 70 weeks. And in case you are interested, the date is not simply fixed by Nehemiah, it is fixed by secular history. Twenty years ago, when I sought to teach this passage, and I don't feel like I did a very good job, but nonetheless, I did the best I could at that time, and I brought in with me to the service an uh, encyclopedia, the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, I bought a set of encyclopedias at a yard sale in Texas before we moved here for $5 for one reason, because I wanted the second volume, because I knew what was in it. And I brought it in and I showed the people, I still remember the page, volume 2, page 660, and it affirms the year that Artaxerxes began his reign. And so this is a clear year. The 20th year is Nisan 1, 445 B.C. Okay, that's the commencement of the count. You with me? All right, good. Let's consider, secondly, the construction of the city. The construction of the city. Verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, seven sevens, 49 years, and 62 weeks. Now, as you work through this prophecy, remember there are three parts. And by the time we're done, I think this will be very clear to you. The first part is seven sevens or seven weeks or 49 years because we're dealing here with weeks of years. The second part is sixty-two sevens, or 62 weeks or 434 Hebrew years. And the third part is one seven or one week, what we refer to as the tribulation period. So in verse 25 here we find two time frames. As this slide illustrates, the first is 49 years. God says first of all, a decree would be written to rebuild and restore Jerusalem and it would take 49 years. And that is exactly what secular history records. When Artaxerxes issued the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, it took 49 years to complete the project. And in spite of all the devil could do to try to stop it, because it would be done in great difficulty, the Bible says. And you can read about that in Nehemiah and Ezra. At the starting point, God did just as he said, just as he spoke through the angel Gabriel. So there's the commencement of the count. There's the construction of the city. Third, there's the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Christ. Let's keep reading here in verse 25. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until, the, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So we're told precisely that from the issuing of a decree, which King Artaxerxes made, until the coming of Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. What's seven plus 62? 69. So we're talking about 69 sevens. And so as this chart shows, 62 weeks later, God predicts that Messiah the Prince will come. So you can start counting from the issuing of the decree to rebuild and restore the city. That took 49 years. You add 62 weeks or 483 years to that and you come up with this number of years of 483 years. So if you take the decree, as we'll see in a moment, written in 445 B.C., it will take you to 32 A.D. Question, how do you suppose the wise men from the East who I believe probably no doubt were descendants of descendants of descendants of wise men who were saved during the time of Daniel. Remember, Daniel saved all the wise men from his ability, all the magi in his day, from his ability to interpret the dream because the king was going to kill every one of them. Don't you think some of them became believers? I have no doubt. And some of their kids and some of their kids and some of their kids. And, of course, from the east would put him in Babylon. How do you suppose that these wise men knew that it was the timing of the Messiah, especially when they see the star that the book of Numbers wrote? How do you suppose they knew that? How do you suppose Simeon there in the temple... Whom the Bible calls a righteous and devout man, a man who was looking for the consolation of Israel, a man who was told by the Spirit of God that he could not see death until he saw the Messiah. This man who was looking for Messiah, how do you suppose he knew it was the time frame of Messiah? And how do you know, how do you suppose that on the eighth day, when they brought the Messiah in to circumcise him under the law, that he said, Behold, I have seen my salvation, and he pre- Preaches of this little baby when he's eight days old that he is going to be killed. How do you suppose Anna, on that same day in the temple, was said to be looking for the redemption of Israel? I'll tell you how. They knew the 70 weeks prophecy of the book of Daniel. Because not only did it pinpoint it to 32 A.D., it also, as we will see next time, gives events that are going to happen after the presentation of Messiah. That he will be cut off and the city will be destroyed. And so I would say to any of my Hebrew friends that may be listening today, if you're looking for a good candidate for the Messiah, Daniel pinpoints the time frame and he tells us that after this 69th week, he'll be cut off, he'll be executed. We'll see that next time. And then the people of the prince to come will destroy and decimate the city of Jerusalem that happens in 70 A.D. So you should be looking for a man who came before 70 A.D. Many a Jew has been converted by studying the 70 weeks prophecy. Some years ago, Leopold Kahn, a Jewish rabbi, had been studying the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9, and he realized it. Messiah has already come. And in search for truth, he made his way to New York City. And there in the providence of God, he stumbled on a gospel meeting. And in a few minutes' time, God put it all together. And he thought, it's Yeshua, it's Jesus. He fulfilled all the prophecies, every single one of them. Shortly after that, he bought a little stable. He swept it out, and he began a mission there in the city of New York to reach Jewish people for Christ. Today, it is known as the American Board of Missions to the Jews. Look, what were the first words out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus after his baptism when he began his public ministry? They are given to us in Mark 1.15. He said, "'The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand.'" Why? Because the precise time that Daniel the prophet spoke of had come upon Israel. This is a mathematical prophecy that will actually take you to 32 AD to Palm Sunday. Now let me pause and give some perspective on that calendar and how we come to that date. There are a number of calendars that have been used over the years. The first one pictured here is what we would call a lunar calendar. A lunar calendar Is consists of 12 months and 12 moons, and the duration of a lunar month changes because of the uh, oblong orbit of the moon around the sun, no doubt, because we live in a fallen creation, and all of creation is shouting that things are slightly off. God put us on notice there in the Garden of Eden with thorns and thistles and all kinds of problems that have come into the creation, but a lunar month is approximately 29.5 days, so a lunar year is 354.3.67 days, and some people use the lunar calendar, the Muslim world uses the lunar calendar, and they don't make any adjustments, and that's why Ramadan falls at different times of the year. Um, then pictured here, the one we use, is a solar calendar. And of course, you know a solar year is 365.24 uh to two days long. And so we make some adjustments every so often with a, a leap year, so to speak, a leap day. And uh, But interestingly enough, there's another calendar that the Jewish people use, and it's what we call a lunar solar calendar. And they use it because God gave a reason to use it in the book of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And God made two great lights. So they took Genesis 1.14 as wisdom and they used a lunar solely solar calendar. So if you take a, a lunar calendar, and you take the number of days in a lunar year, and you take the number of days in a solar year, and you add the two together, and you divide them by two, you come up with 359.80 days. And just as we have a... Uh, 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 you know, some, a leap year, so to speak, every four years. The Jewish people to this day have a leap month of sorts. Now, I believe as I've studied these calendars, and indeed I'm no expert on them, It's a science in and of itself, but as I've studied the Gregorian and the Julian calendars, I recognize that the calendar the Jewish people use is far more precise than our own. Look, in the 15th century, they realized we're off 11 days, and they made some huge adjustments. And so how did the Jews account for the days by which they could adjust their calendar? God gave them a reason how to do it. It was based on the ripeness of the wheat and the sighting of the new moon. That's a sermon in and of itself. There's a number of passages in the Torah. But remember, at Passover, they would use barley. So they would go and they would look for the barley to be aviv, to be ripe. And they had to sight the new moon. And when these two factors came together, they knew they were on track. And when they didn't, they would add an intercalary month. But what I want you to see is that in the Jewish mind, they have a 360-day year that on occasion they make adjustments. And so when God speaks historically and prophetically in the Word of God, He uses the 360-day calendar. Let me give you some examples. We just looked at one a few weeks ago when we studied the Great Flood. If you remember in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11... God turned the faucets on. When did he do it? In the second month of the 17th day of the month. Remember, he was in that ark for 377 days over a year, and the waters had to recede. But God turned the faucets off, Genesis 8.3 says, 150 days later, and the seventh month of the 17th day of the month. So five months went by from the second month, 17th day of the month, to the seventh month, 17th day of the month, which God terms 150 days. So God is equating a month, five months, to be 30 days each. In addition, you have a number of prophetic passages. When we step into the Revelation, we're going to learn in Revelation chapter 11 of two witnesses, two Jewish men. Will preach the gospel, the Bible there says, for 1290 days or 42 months. That's those are 42 30 day months. When you come to Revelation 12 and verse 6, he is going to describe one half of the seven-year tribulation period as 1,260 days. When you come to Revelation chapter 13, the Antichrist, the one that John calls the beast using the same term that Daniel the prophet does, it says there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And when you put all the passages together, 42 months, 1,260 days, makes 30-day months or a 360-day prophetic year. So why is this important? Well... Here's the math. It's done for you on the next slide. God says there will be 483 years times 360 days or 173,880 days from the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, which was issued by Artaxerxes on Nisan 1, 445 B.C. And what does that bring you to? It brings you to April 6, 32 A.D., what happened on April the sixth, thirty-two A.D.? That is the day that we call Palm Sunday. That is the day that the Jews would bring the sheep from Bethlehem into the city through the sheep's gate for the rabbis to inspect all week long to make sure that the Jews used in, the lambs used in sacrifice had no spot or blemish. That was the day when God's lamb. Entered the city of Jerusalem. And all week long, he's going to be inspected by all these different religious groups. A third of the gospels were given to the last week of Christ's life and not by accident. And so he makes his triumphal entry on that donkey, just as the prophet Zechariah said, now understand, the ministry of the Lord Jesus began in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Luke records in 3.1. That's A.D. 29. He ministers for over three years, which brings us to Palm Sunday, 32 A.D. And it's on that Sunday when they take their garments off and they take their palms and they spread them before Messiah as he comes through and they shout, hail him, hail! Hail him, hail him, they will cry out, Psalm 118. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But the Pharisees, of course, rebuke Christ and he told him to make the multitude stop saying that. But a few short days later, because he's not the kind of king they want, most of them, instead of saying, Hail Him, hail him will now say, nail him, nail him. And of course, after the 69th week, as we will study next time, Messiah will be cut off. He enters on Sunday, and on Friday, he hangs on a cross. And Jesus knowing what is in their hearts as he's there on the top of the Mount of Olives as they come across. We read in Luke nineteen forty-two, as he weeps over the city, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. This was their day. This, if they had enough sense to pick up the prophet Daniel, they would have recognized. This is, as he will say in verse 44, he says, You did not recognize the time of your visitation. There are two words for time in Greek. Chronos, we got our word chronology, and the word kairos that denotes a unique time that something special was to happen. This was the precise 173,880th day prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, and for the most part, they missed it because in their self-righteousness, they didn't see the need for a Savior. Now, the liberal scholars don't like the book of Daniel Some some years back, in the early part of the 20th century, said it was written in the 1st or 2nd century A.D. under a pseudonym, Daniel. The Jews, of course, have always believed it was written in the 6th century. But then the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered copies of Daniel. Before that, the oldest copy we had was the Masoretic Text in the 9th century or 10th century, But then they found copies going back 200 years before Christ. So they they couldn't use the dating that they had used prior. But even for the sake of argument, if Daniel was written 200 years before Christ, which of course goes against what Jesus says, because Jesus doesn't call him Daniel the historian, but Daniel the prophet... But even if it was written 200 years before Christ, there's so many prophecies we're going to see in the 11th chapter, not to mention this prophecy in and of itself that happens after the fact. And this is why they come up with a new way in which to destroy Daniel. It's not... uh, It's 400, it's it's not years that are involved, it's days that are involved. Not 490 years, but 490 days. They say, well, obviously, those things did not happen. Therefore, Daniel can't be believed, and therefore, the rest of the Bible can't be believed. See, people don't want to come across the Bible. It could be the Word of God. Well, what are the implications on that? They're huge. Genesis tells us how it started. Daniel tells us how it will all end. And people want to deny their origins and they want to deny their ends because they want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Look, the first time I heard Daniel 9 preached, the first time I studied it, I didn't grasp it all, but I got this much, that Daniel had predicted the very day that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. Friend, friend, People can laugh at us. They can poke fun at this book. But everything it has ever prophesied has come true and the remaining prophecies will be precisely fulfilled. The first time he came, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But the Bible promises as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God They had missed this. It's possessive. It's genitive. This, your very day, they missed it. And I fear some people listening to me today will miss that. This is your very day because this may be the last day in which the Spirit of God will strive with your heart for he will not strive with you forever and you cannot come to Jesus as Messiah all on your own. It is a sovereign work of Almighty God who opens up a dead heart, who draws people to himself, but you are free to resist that drawing and there will come a time when God will give you your wish and you will miss your day and you will remember this sermon in hell and you will regret it for all of eternity. Listen, that's not God's plan for you. Receive him today, and though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow, but reject him. And under the perfect justice of God, you will pay the debt yourself that will take you an eternity to pay that Christ as an infinite person paid there on Golgotha for you. God wants to forgive you, but the only way He can forgive you is through Mashiach Nagid, the Prince of Israel, and His name is Jesus. Now, Father, we thank you today for your amazing grace, for this amazing book. No man could have ever thought it up. It is your finger by which it was produced through the Holy Spirit as he wrote through various human authors. Thank you, like a great tapestry, every book, every verse perfectly fits together. May we never be ashamed of the message you've entrusted to us. May we preach it with authority. And thank you that when we preach your word, your word which is alive, that it pierces the human heart and it shows men their need to call upon Christ. I pray today for someone listening to me, maybe in another part of the world, maybe a Jewish person today who needs to receive Yeshua as the Messiah. Thank you that whoever will call on his name will be saved. Help someone in simple, childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, we love you for the amazing grace that you've shown us through your son. May we never take it for granted and may we be quick to look for opportunities to share it. Even this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.